And we have two fantastic guests today from New York Times, Mike Bostock and Sean Carter. Hi guys, how are you? Hey, it's good to be here. Hi, it's great to be here. Hey Mike, hey Sean. Yeah, I let you guys introduce yourself. Mike, you want to start? Uh, sure, I'm Mike Bostock. I'm a graphics editor at the New York Times. Um, what else do you want to know? I, I created this D3 visualization toolkit. Uh, I'm Sean Carter. I, I'm also a graphics editor at the New York Times. Um, I've been here since about 2006. And before that, I've worked at uh, several other papers in California. And uh, basically, I worked in newspapers ever since college. So Sean, you have mostly a journalism background, or do you do you have like also design or computer science in the mix? Um, yeah, my mom was a graphic designer, uh, so growing up, I was kind of exposed to that. And then in school, I studied economics and uh, and worked at our college paper. But most of my journalism training has kind of been on the job training. I don't mm -hmm. have a degree in it or anything. Nice. So you guys are mostly. So you are the people at, at New York Times who are mostly dealing with the interactive part, right? So you're mostly developing the the the, the visualizations that go on the website, right? Is that correct? That's right. Primarily we do interactive graphics. Um, I mean, Sean and I are both based in San Francisco, whereas the rest of the department is obviously in Manhattan. Uh, and we tend to focus more on the interactives for the website. Can you tell us a bit more about the team? I, I mean, not everybody might be familiar with how how huge and unique the, the yeah. graphics team is. Yeah, um, so it's yeah quite, our, quite the graphics department is close to 30 people. Um, and we do everything from like basically almost every map or chart or uh, explanatory diagram that you see in the printed paper and online um, is our responsibility. And... Um, I'd say we split about maybe a third of the people do kind of online mostly. Uh, about a third of the people do half and half, and about a third of the people do mostly just print work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, what's roughly, I mean, quantity is not the <laughs> primary measure, of <laughs> course, but roughly, so people have an idea like how many graphics do you produce, like? A day or a week or we work on a variety of different graphics like on different time scales you know we'll work on mm -hmm. some that are daily graphics uh, some that might take a week or two weeks others that might take a month I think mm -hmm. for me personally I'm most happy working on a graphic that takes about two weeks maybe three weeks at most uh, because it's enough time to really do something interesting but it's not so much time that you get sick of it and want to work on something else Mm -hmm. uh, so we work on a mix of those things. I mean, I think by nature of Sean and I working out of San Francisco, we tend to do a little bit more uh, longer-term graphics, by which I mean the sort of two- to four-week cycle, uh, rather than the rest of the department. Um, but we do a mix of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how does it work? Do you normally... So are you free to, get a, to come up with your own ideas, or you get some instructions from New York, and then you work on on some ideas that they suggest, or how does it work? How does a new project start? Um, yeah, I'd say like most of the projects kind of start with some sort of uh, 
either a news event or an article that a reporter is working on. Um, but from that, I it's usually kind of like more of a prompt than an assignment. And so it's kind of like, here's this story we're working on. Um, we think it has a great opportunity for some sort of you know, statistical analysis or map or diagram. And then from there, our department kind of like does independent research reporting and writing and, you know, builds the graphic up from scratch. Um, not to say that there aren't ideas that we, that like any one person could come up with and just say, hey, I think this would be an interesting thing, you know, for the paper. Um, and we can easily pitch stuff. But most of the things are kind of in response to like the news of the day or, upcoming news events. Mm -hmm. So usually so, there's also an article planned or in the works and and you sort of dock onto that and, and take the same theme and, and work with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, like for instance, elections is pretty freeform. Like we just know that the elections are happening. So, you know, we brainstorm a lot of ideas ourselves. Um, They're sort of predictable, like schedule wise as well. Right when you think yeah, these those, those are, are ahead of time, which you can helps. do some preparation <laughs> yeah. for it. Whereas, obviously, for breaking news, you have no idea it's coming. Exactly. Yeah. So normally, part of your work includes also finding the data, you know, that you need to to create a visualization out of it. Or normally, you get some data already from the it's, from the persons who have. It's a mix of both. Know. It depends on the topic. I mean, sometimes you have a researcher that's doing research in this particular field, and they have a data set and. They think that it would make an interesting graphic, and so they're providing the data to us for us to work on. Whereas in other cases, we might be doing a visualization of data that's publicly accessible, um, or okay. it's just simply historical data, like the swing states graphic. I mean, there's polling data that you can look up, um, or you know, census data, things like that. Yeah, and occasionally we will like collect data ourselves, like send someone down to New Orleans to like visit every you know, house on a block and, you know, gather some sort of sample of how people are doing re reconstruction or something like that. But that's much, much more of the data is like stuff we're finding from researchers or like Mike said, from publicly accessible sources mm -hmm. or from companies that, you know, collect data like Netflix, for instance. Okay, sure. But it, it is our, like the people in our department are, are, Generally, more often than not, the ones you know getting that data or finding the data sources, and I'd say that's almost half the job. <laughs> it's like I mean, even using the data, is, even cleaning when, it up. Yeah, even when data is provided to us, there's usually a ton of work to actually get it into a usable format. Sure, of course, yeah. I can imagine yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, 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 sure. Like I had an interesting experience on this uh, map that we did recently of illegal immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border. And the story was about the uh, border patrol agents that inc had increased in staffing. And so we had data that was the number of agents per border patrol sector. And so in order to create a map of this, we needed to know what the boundaries were for each of the border patrol sectors. But just looking that up was extremely difficult. And we had you know, contacts that we were working with that didn't provide us with the data. And so I ended up doing some searching. I, I found this PDF file that had the map embedded in it. And I... I knew that like D3 supported the projection that was required to create this map. And so I spent uh, a couple hours like trying to figure out exactly what the projection parameters were. I eventually discovered that this map had been distorted, like stretched vertically by 12%, oh, <laughs> which is why none of my projections lined up. Um, but then eventually I found through sort of a lucky Google, Google query, uh, 
a server on a .mil domain, like an ArcGIS server, that was returning the cartographic boundaries for each patrol sector um, in like some <laughs> Esri format. <laughs> It had this like totally inscrutable query interface. And anyway, I eventually got it to spit out like a separate boundary file for each of these sectors that I was then able to write like a custom script to turn that into a standard GeoJSON format and then finally like make the map out of it. But so sometimes there's a lot of work that just goes into getting the data for a particular graphic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reason why I was asking. That it looks like that's almost always the case, right? So people working in visualization have to spend a lot of time dealing with data. <laughs> yeah, for sure. How do you deal with like like once the visualization is done with QA? Is there also like fact checking? I mean, I know you have quite thorough fact checking for the articles. Do you also have that for the visualizations? So will people click through and like you know look at some of the tooltips and look up the numbers if they are correct stuff like that? Yeah, internally we'll do that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do it as much. Um, it's kind of like spot checking, but making sure that all your programming is correct. If you have confidence in your original data set, you know, yeah, like you're yeah. not making an error in it. So we do kind of spot check that, like internally. Mm -hmm. um, it does seem a little bit different than like an article where you're kind of rewriting stuff, or hopefully when you're doing a data visualization, you're not like, you know, having false. Presentation of the core data that you have. Sure, sure. Um, but in terms of the data collection, we also kind of like vet our sources and make sure that the the data set that we've been given is is like properly collected and kind of ask mm -hmm. them about their their techniques in collecting it and you know making sure that there's nothing you know wrong or misleading in the core data. I mean, ultimately, it's it's our own responsibility to make sure that the data is correct. Like we don't rely on the copy desk to find errors in our data. We have to do that ourselves. Um, but one of the things that I like to do to sort of ease my sanity is to have like a fairly well automated process for going from the raw data from the primary source to the data that actually gets incorporated in the graphic. And that way you can actually easily inspect that process to make sure that you didn't... Because the, the most likely cause of errors is that you hand-edited something and yeah. you, did, you made like a slight mistake. Like you have... Like uh, Sublime Text has this great feature where you can have multiple cursors open, right? <laughs> and so you're like editing like a thousand things at the same time, but then yeah. you didn't realize that there was one mismatch of the query that you used, like in some off-screen cursor, and so you yeah. like edited. Oh, it didn't correctly. wrap around or something. Yeah, right. Like that. So yeah. if I have a make file instead that documents or that automates this process that goes like directly from whatever the raw data is that we downloaded from the primary source, like from the census or whatever was shipped yeah. to us from the researcher, then it's much easier to inspect that process for correctness than it is to follow mm -hmm. every individual fact in the data set. Yeah, and you can reproduce the graphic once the data changes, stuff like that. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, There was a great question from Twitter, which really fits that theme, from Catherine Malbrandon. She does visualizing economics. And she asks, when posting a graphic online, should you also post the data set used in it? Why or why not? If if not, I think that's a really really intriguing question. So, do you think uh, the New York Times should also make the or the raw data available that was used for the graphic? Um, I know that some. I think the WNYC folks, like John Keefe's team, um, has a little link at the bottom, and so you can like sort of download the data set. Okay. Um, 
which I th- it's a cool idea. We've never like really discussed it or had like a lot of demand for that. Um, my thinking is that if if that is useful to you, it's fairly easy to, to kind of extract it from the source of the page. Um, and in some cases, we we don't actually have the rights to redistribute the source data in that way. Uh, like if we've purchased a data set from like AP or something, or yeah. um, this researcher has agreed to let us visualize it, but not necessarily anybody else. Um, so I, and then I know Mike, like, like we kind of point, try to point people towards where we got the data, the original sources. And that's usually like a more complete data set as mm-hmm. well. That's yeah. I mean, my, my personal philosophy is that we shouldn't be responsible for republishing data. Because generally, there's a whole bunch of transformation and aggregation that goes into the data that we use for the final graphic that makes it different than the data that is published by the primary source. And so if you want to reuse that data set, then there may be certain assumptions that are made in the original data set or that are a side effect of this transformation process that may not be Mm. clear to you. So generally, it's safer to go to the primary source and make sure that you understand the primary data set if you're going to make a graphic on it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah probably would need some extra documentation exactly. as well, like how the, yeah. Um, and so it's very much our responsibility to, to make it clear where the data comes from, but I think we do that by linking to the primary sources rather than being the middleman and, and republishing the data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know what I like about that thought is that it sort of says, well, already the data transformation is sort of a journalistic act maybe that, you know, that's, uh, could also be of value, or that right. So maybe we should publish. Or people our might files. want to use that output. Uh, maybe, <laughs> yeah. I, I found. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. But it's interesting that you say you didn't have much request for that. So so people didn't really um, come to you and say like for the I don't know the swing states graphic or so. Could I use the same data set? And do you have that? Or it, that's not a common request. Um. Yeah. It's, I guess it's not something we really figured out internally and. I know that I have seen some people just, you know, take those data sets and revisualize it as kind of experiments and um which is cool to see in some cases uh, like I said I'm not sure that we have the rights to kind of like make that public for everybody but it is a, it is an extra level of work on top and mm. I think it's I think it's like admirable I think it's cool but I haven't seen a ton of demand personally for it so we haven't taken the extra step to <laughs> to do that each time yeah, I mean, I think the thing I would prefer to do is sort of document our process, like in the form of a tutorial or an example, or to like share, you know, here's like, like for example, I made this let's make a map tutorial that shows how we use data from natural earth to make maps or to take data from the U.S. National Atlas. And so that way you're sort of describing a general process for getting access to data rather than just providing access to this one specific data set that was used by that graphic. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Sean, you're right. In the end, I mean, inspect source and <laughs> you're good to go anyways <laughs> if, you're, if you're technically inclined and yeah. Yeah, most of our, most of our data sets we load as TSV files. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it shouldn't be too hard it's to figure hard out to if you actually a TSV file. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could be I'm not encouraging. Task. Task. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, I mean, it is with publicly accessible data. I think it's great that people could use that to make yeah. their own stuff. I love seeing people kind of remix our graphics. I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. About the style of work, I mean, you you started off with a few really nice 
very deep and exploratory uh, visualizations, like for instance the the 512 path to the White House, which which showed a totally new way of thinking about like how the course of of, of uh, statewise elections could could uh, influence the end result or what options certain outcomes leave, like a decision tree type approach, or the swing states like a long how how do you, how would you call that type of diagram? Is it like a Stack kind of stream a sank, thing. Sankey diagram, but it's not really flow. I mean, it's really just a line chart, I guess. It's just probably, the, the but it also has is, has different widths, right? right? So, yeah. But it was very interesting to see how different swing states change their voting results over the years. And it's very very deep data and very exploratory. And I was really excited about this whole. You know, I, I love this exploratory approaches anyway. So I was excited to see that. Uh, in the times, uh, and and now a few of the, the the newer graphics I found were a bit more handmade and a bit more let's say stylized and and to the point. Like there was a map on uh, Asian countries how they perform GDP wise and and how they change, or the the map of the Oscar um, contenders, like how how all these different actors play together. Um, so is that a general trend? Are you now uh, at this point in time looking more on? few more, um, let's say, more handcrafted graphics, or are you, will you go back to deep data as well, or what, what's your what's your feeling? I, I think it's simply harder to do a good exploratory graphic, uh, and that is because an exploratory graphic, it, well, it sort of implies that you're doing exploration, which means that you're doing some amount of work to extract the insight from that graphic. Whereas if you have sure. an explanatory or expository graphic, you're sort of presenting upfront, like, here's what the conclusion is, or here's what the interesting insight is from this data. And I think even in the case of the graphics that you're describing as exploratory, our goal is to give an overview that presents something interesting. So like mm -hmm. with the 512 paths, um, just by looking at the beginning, you know, you can see the importance of, you know, winning Florida and Ohio compared to yep. some of the yep. states with fewer electoral votes. So there's like a a conclusion that you can see even if you don't click on it, even if you don't just notice that it's an interactive graphic. Um, but the reason why exploratory is hard is because you know trying to find that balance where you you have some initial insight that you want to show in the overview, but there's also sort of a really rich data set that facilitates further insight if you play with it. I mean, it's just it's something hard. Not every data set is has that level of depth to it. So sometimes, you know. You just want to show those initial insights as quickly as possible and not, not not make people work for it. So I think we would always love to do more exploratory data sets. It's just a question of finding the right opportunity to make them. I just I think the elections are kind of a unique opportunity for those kind of exploratory mm -hmm. data graphics. One because like people are kind of inherently like pretty interested in <laughs> in that data like before. They even see your your graphic, so it's something that the whole country is interested in upfront, and also it's something that we've done several years in the past. So we have like kind of a lot of accumulated knowledge and uh, ideas and insights about what works and what doesn't. So it's a lot easier for us to kind of come up with yep. new new ideas and kind of strike that balance that Mike is talking about because we're so familiar with the data set and we've done it, you know, year after. Or every two years, basically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like with the five twelve. Whereas, like, for example, oh. you know, people have their own hunches as to how these particular states are going to go, either because they live there, or they have relatives or friends that live there, you know, they have their own particular um, context that they want to incorporate into that visualization, and so that encourages them to explore it. 
Yeah. So do you guys have any do you guys have an idea of how much these more exploratory interactive visualizations are used by your readers? Are they actually really engaging with this kind of more interactive visualizations? Do you have any do you ever try to see I don't know maybe logging what they do or even having anecdotal evidence of what they do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's something that I have been wanting to work on for a while, but I haven't really gotten around to it yet. I mean, I would say there are a lot of challenges in terms of doing analytics on our graphics because every graphic is different, right? Some graphics aren't exploratory, so measuring how much time people spend exploring a graphic and then trying to compare two different graphics, one of which is exploratory and one of which isn't, you know, it's comparing apples to oranges. Sure, but on the other sure, hand, there, there yeah. are lots of things that we could be drawing from data that we're not really collecting right now. So that is one of the areas that I've been thinking of, of doing some more infrastructure work. Because um, I, I do have some background in that. For example, the Project Cube that I did for Square was really about doing event logging and analysis of those. Mm -hmm. And so maybe uh, in the future we'll be setting up sort of more custom analytics for our graphics so that we can understand how people interact with them and try to quantify yeah. some of their success. Yeah, I think which introduces actually another more generic question that I have. So how much feedback do you get from, from your readers? I mean, do you know how people interpret the stuff you do? Do you know how, how able they are to, to read the stuff that you produce? So do you get any kind of feedback or, or is it just you, you put it there and then you, you hope that it's going to be the best? I mean... Um, we do, I mean, I feel like in this day and age, it's easy to <laughs> see feedback on stuff on Twitter, or like oh, yeah, uh, sure, sure, through sure. comments or whatnot. Um, and so I think pretty quickly when we publish a graphic, we tend to see like some sort of reaction, whether it's positive or negative. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, we do have like kind of feedback. Sometimes people like will actually email us. We have a, kind of a small feedback button on each graphic. And some graphics actually are, are sort of like comment-based where people are leaving comments. Um, I'm sure that some of the graphics are kind of like complicated and people don't like spend the time to like engage with them or find it too hard, too difficult to understand or something. But we don't, uh, we don't get a lot of like negative feedback along those lines. And maybe those people are out there and they're just not taking the time to feedback. But um, the kind of feedback that I generally like really spend time looking for is if something's hard to use in terms of the UI. I feel like sure. time spent like learning how to use a graphic is kind of time wasted, whereas time learning, uh, time spent uh, like understanding a graphic, we're we're using these complicated chart forms because they allow kind of a more complex understanding of the data set, and so I feel like that's kind of worthwhile time. So if people are like confused as to how to use a graphic or like the buttons don't make sense to them or there's like too many buttons or they didn't understand that the slider did something. Those are the sorts of reactions that I'm like really keen and really look for. Um, but the kind of like, I don't know, we don't get a ton of feedback in terms of it was too complicated to see. We, I mean, we keep that in mind as we're developing the graphic to try to make it uh, understandable to the most the highest number of people, but also to have the level of kind of like insight that we're looking to show uh, with the data. Yeah. yeah. One, one bit of feedback that 
I think is very interesting to observe is whether or not people discover certain interactions or certain modes of interaction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so like with the 512 Paths graphic, for example, we got a lot of people that said they liked it, um, but then they either asked for something or they made some sort of comment that made it clear that they didn't realize that it was interactive. Um, which was interesting okay, yeah. because, and, and I think that might have been sort of somewhat an artifact of the design, right? Like you have this big data graphic in the middle of the page, and then we had these buttons across the top that were um, white yep. with a little gray outline against a white background. So they weren't sort of very visually salient, and people are trained to sort of immediately leap, you know, past all the ads and other distracting content to like the big data graphic in the center. And so maybe those people then didn't discover the other interactive components around it. And so that's Which not something that, that they Sorry. tell you explicitly because they don't even realize it themselves, right? It's just sort of something that you have to extract by hearing how they talk about the graphic. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, th I think that's very a very good observation that often the more specific, specifically the people tweet about it, the more you, you understand that... They actually went deep and found like all individual insights. And if they just write, wow, awesome new thing, you're never really sure <laughs> how long they look. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The best feedback is when they're like, when they respond to some insight rather than saying, oh, wow. Or, you know? right. <laughs> like that's ultimately our goal is to like, you know, yeah. educate people on something. So sure, sure. Not just impress them with some technical feats. <laughs> Right, like sometimes I wonder when I tweet something and then I see that it's like retweeted immediately, and it's like, well, it, <laughs> how could you it even must have like, taken at least yeah, a few minutes yeah, yeah, to yeah. understand it? It's, but it's like <laughs> they're already retweeting it. Yeah, it means people trust you. I guess. <laughs> I <hope so. laughs> yeah, but it's very interesting because I mean, you you do try to to. I think in each new graphic, find a new sort of visual form or, or try out stuff, and it's it's really interesting how you know which type of people respond to what or yeah how broadly these things are understood or not. It's um, it's hard to to find out. Yeah, I think that yeah, really I mean you're touching on a really interesting point, which is trying to come up with language that is familiar, but also sort of expanding our vocabulary so that we can convey these things in the most effective way, like. One of the things that uh, Jeff Hare and I, my advisor at Stanford, talked about it was like, this, what is this grammar of interactive graphics? It's like we have a grammar of mm -hmm. graphics that describes like static graphics. Like we tend to be fairly familiar with sort of the standard chart typology of bar charts and pie charts and area charts and things like that. But I don't know if we quite have the same sort of established vocabulary of modes of interaction, right? Like we have the ability to do brushing or panning and zooming. And there are some standard things that we have, but at the same time, it seems like a lot of these graphics, you kind of want to come up with something new that's tailored specifically to what it is that you're trying to show. And then the challenge is, you know, if you make it custom to this graphic, how do you still make it recognizable at the same time so that it's intuitive? Sure, sure. I think, yeah, I think, Mike, you might be familiar with some of the research that has been done in the past in this area. But I agree with you, there, there's not really kind of a grammar that, that formally defines what kind of interactions you can have. That, that's definitely really interesting. Yeah. But probably more complicated. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Much more complicated. Yeah. yeah, but also visual forms. So, and, and I really like how you, how you also try and expand the, the, the vocabulary in this area. Yeah. So it's like um, we, we have this 
trade-off between like, do I want to use the native button, which everybody knows what it looks like, but is kind of, you know, maybe a little bit ugly or doesn't sort of fit in with the rest of our flow, you know, or, or like um, we did the NFL draft last week and there was a debate that we had um, of the slider. It's like, are we going to use the native slider or are we going to write a custom slider that looks better and is sort of more integrated with the design? <laughs> Yeah, but this is something I wanted to ask you guys. So how do you decide where is the boundaries between something that is familiar but is not really uh, working well for your purposes or something that is a little bit less familiar but it's just perfect? So how do you set the boundaries between these two things? I think like a lot of our, like when we're doing something like kind of like weird or new, uh, our goal is not to like, create something novel to catch people's attention generally. It's more that we're trying to kind of like as simply as we can convey the essence of like the core truth that we're trying to convey in the graphic. So like with that 512 pass, for instance, like that kind of novel visual form came out of my desire to like show you all the pass available, right? <laughs> so it's kind of in response to some like question or some idea that we're trying to convey. And so I think if if that's your goal, then I don't think, I mean, that seems to me like a very, like, I don't know, like a, a fairly, everybody would enjoy like something that is easier to understand or like conveys more information in a smaller amount of time or is just like better at conveying something more complicated. So that's our goal. Our goal is not necessarily primarily to create something that's like new or different. And so I think sure, sure, sure. In, in kind of aiming your sights at that, it helps you kind of orient in that kind of weird space where you're doing something that nobody has seen before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you, like, what what would be a typical workflow? Maybe let's stick with the 512 paths. Like, did you start with something fairly standard and then develop more into this very unique representation or... Uh, did you have the tree idea from the beginning and then just, let's say, tweak the details? How how did that uh, come about? Yeah, I kind of, um, we, like, we started just kind of building it. <laughs> and the, the, the <laughs> so early versions of it. So you away or would you first, like, scribble? Yeah. Um, this one, I there was no, like, paper, well, there, Mike, you did some paper sketches, like, partway through. That was farther it. along, um, um, I mean, I think generally yeah. we start prototyping with code because we're dealing with data, and you don't know what the graphic is going to look like unless you're using real data. And to do a hand sketch with real data is extraordinarily tedious, which sort of uh, negates the benefit of doing it with pencil and paper in the first place. So, to Un- unless you're Stephanie Posovic, then <laughs> that's right. Then you can pull it off. <laughs> then you can maybe. Um, but but generally, I right. agree. So for us, like we start by doing these very minimalist prototypes, where we sort of try to cut as many features as possible to just get the raw data graphic uh, on the screen yeah. to see what it looks like, and then we can use that to explore the design space fairly quickly and do a whole bunch of iterations and try different branches, and then once we sort of get a sense of what parts of it are working well, um, what parts need to be improved, you know, we start mm-hmm. doing sort of less drastic iterations. We're converging towards what our final design is. And then mm-hmm. we can start to add all of those, um, you know, extra bells, or not really bells and whistles, but like the, 
the elements that are sort of more tedious to implement, but that are critical for user yeah. understanding. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, mm -hmm. things like so it's a lot like a sculpting sculpting approach that you would make the core. Yeah. Or the core's features first, and then. Uh, yeah. So, like for the 512 Paths graphics, I mean, Sean gave this talk at, at a visualized conference in New York City, and you can see a whole bunch of iterations that he went through. Um, but the funny thing for me, looking back at all of the hundreds of versions that that graphic went through, is that the first version ended up being remarkably similar to the final version that we published, even though we went through mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different variations in between. But there was a critical thing missing. So, the first version was, a, again, a tree layout where you're sort of looking at the entire space of possible outcomes, but then you're truncating the paths when the decision is made, when the threshold crosses uh, 270 electoral votes or 269 mm -hmm. for a tie. Um, because it doesn't matter anyways. Exactly, it doesn't matter. You know, once yeah. if Obama wins Florida and Ohio, nothing else matters beyond that, right? Because yeah. he already has more than 270 electoral votes. Yeah. Um, but the key yeah. thing that was missing it's from like that first... 100% game theory, by the way. It's like, you know, as you would do a chess tree or, or something like this. I, I love that about it. <laughs> it. It shows that whole game game, game development you know, of the election. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Sorry, I think yeah, that actually, was successful oh. because it, it did capture the overview of the entire space. Like when people were talking yeah. about it, like um, on television, they would always like throw out like a couple scenarios. But the problem is, well, you have a couple scenarios, but it's out of 512 or more. And so just like poking at a couple examples doesn't give you any sense of what the overall space of possibilities are. Yeah. And actually, the, the first commit on that was basically just the buttons and then some text readout. Because I was like trying to wrap my head around exactly that problem is like, <laughs> you know, like, because I was frustrated too. I was like, "Oh, I've seen like four different scenarios," but then I'd see other people's scenarios, and then like you quickly lose track of them all. And so yeah. I was just kind of like, "Well, yeah, how many are there?" You know, right. like, let's just look at it. You know? like, so, you, you, the first one had like no visual, <laughs> no visual representation, yeah, yeah. but and so it just kind of evolved from there. Yeah, it's a fine example of like how this birds I've used really interesting, but only if you pre-structure and write and as you say make sure you just show the relevant stuff and leave out and prune away all the, the stuff that doesn't matter anyways right. and sort of so, you know, so yeah, for example that, that first tree layout um, even though it was very similar to the final graphic that we ended up publishing the thing that it was missing is that those decision nodes like the Florida and Ohio example they didn't have any more visual prominence than the other nodes that you know were the, the leaf nodes like these very unlikely possibilities and so the challenge there was to try to keep this simple structure, but to weight the tree so that the likelihood of the paths somehow corresponded to its visual prominence. And that's really what gave it the, you know, the, the quick, um, you know, almost like pre-attentive response. Like you just look at this and you can see like the important parts of the tree are m more visually prominent than the less important parts. Yeah, and I think that was a good one of like where we, where our there's like kind of a mantra we have in our department uh, that I think Amanda for, Amanda Cox first said is like it's easier to kind of make a thousand graphics and pick the best one than to just make the best one <laughs> from the beginning. You know, so like we try to like just like if we have an idea, we try to try it out as quickly as possible, and then it's much easier to choose to see if it's working or not with the real data. Yeah, and um, 
like Mike and I use D3 and kind of the web as our kind of prototyping medium. Uh, Amanda and Kevin Quayley and some others use uh, R a lot because they find that really quick for prototyping. It's just kind of whatever you can like make a graphic as quickly as possible, like the minimum viable graphic as quickly as possible yeah. and not feel like you've invested too much into it so you can throw it away easily. Mm-hmm. I feel like, so whatever yeah. kind of satisfies that in terms of prototyping, that has that kind of works well for us. So you normally you normally don't use a lot of prepared prototyping, right? Not really. I mean, we do sketch out for the more like explanatory diagrams, but not for data visualization because like Mike said it's it's hard to like sketch out what data will look like uh, on paper with a pencil. So I, I used paper sure, sketching sure. in the 512 paths, but that was just for the transition animation. So when you change the states, right? Like if you switched from Virginia goes Republican to Virginia goes Democrat, it does this transition where it basically regrows part of the tree that was previously pruned and then prunes a new part of the tree. And so like some nodes come up and some nodes come down. And it was pretty complicated uh-huh. and more complicated than I could just sort of think of it in my head. So I ended up writing it down okay. with a couple of scenarios to try to figure out what the appropriate transition was between these two different states of the tree. And so in that case, I was using paper not so much to sketch out the design, but to sort of increase my working memory so that I could design the appropriate transition. So this is something you do for for yourself in order to understand better how it should work rather than as a way to communicate to some others how you think it would work. Right. Yeah, okay, good. And, and we will like take... Like I'll sometimes take screenshots of our prototypes and bring it into Illustrator if I want to like play around with annotation placements or okay. um, yeah. kind of UI elements. So I'll then do use Illustrator to kind of like mock up different scenarios with mm-hmm. those sorts of things. But mm-hmm. um, generally, with the, the the data graphic, I it's it's just hard to do that without the actual data. Yeah, <laughs> or I find that you get better results by working with the real stuff. I find these hybrid workflows really fascinating. So I, I mean, maybe until two years ago or so, I programmed everything, like you know, even the text labels, and it was like, I don't know, maybe just some sort of code ethics or something like this. You know, that's only real work if it's programmed. Uh, but now, the last few years, I really learned to appreciate all this. You know, how how much better it can work if you do a few things by hand and sort of, yeah, get the best of both worlds. And I mean, before the show, we discussed a bit how the, for instance, for this Asia map, like how you had this sort of hybrid workflow between coding stuff, then um, using these results, uh, but then optimizing a few things by hand. Uh, so uh, what's your take on this yeah, type of Yeah, I mean, we're thing? really lucky the space that we're working in and that we have these fixed data sets. So we have the opportunity to incorporate human tweaking and adjustment to improve the quality of our graphics. I mean, certainly in spaces where the data set is not defined ahead of time, you don't have the opportunity to sort of, maybe if you use Mechanical Turk, you know, you can't incorporate human correction. Like, uh, But in our, in our cases, because we know these data sets ahead of time, we can. And so then the challenge becomes sort of how, what's the most efficient process, right? Like you have a choice and you want to maximize quality for amount of uh, unit time development work. So you have a choice between doing sort of the fully automated approach, which would require you to implement a potentially complex algorithm, um, potentially like some open research areas, um, versus doing things by hand. And trying to find 
which parts of the problem are best solved by the computer and which parts of the problem are best solved by hand is really kind of the interesting challenge to producing the best graphic in the least available time. So in the case of the cartogram you mentioned, you know, we were starting with this continuous area cartogram algorithm, the Gastner-Newman algorithm, and it does a distortion of geography, but it's continuous. So it's just distorting the boundaries of each of the uh, provinces of China or these countries in Asia. Um, and then on top of that, we're overlaying this hexagonal grid to produce the final sort of discrete cartogram. And the challenge was overlaying that hexagonal grid introduced a lot of error, a lot of error. And so we could sort of throw away the Gastner-Newman algorithm and design a new algorithm from scratch for solving this problem, which would be a whole lot of work. Or we could sort of take the output of this existing sort of off-the-shelf algorithm and then just doing a little bit of hand correction end up with a high-quality result that didn't have any apparent error. Um, so that's what we ended up doing. Um, <laughs> I still think it would be interesting to go back and design a discrete algorithm for that particular problem because it ended up being quite tedious because I chose very small hexagons. <laughs> if I had chosen larger hexagons, <laughs> it would have been a much easier graphic to make. Yeah, yeah. So sort of a classic yeah, yeah. Uh, noob mistake. Um, actually, so Ralph Straumann is this Swiss cartographer who was one who like made this hexagonal cartogram that was part of the inspiration for this graphic, and he helped me by explaining the process that he used to make the graphic. And so when I finally yes, published uh, it, you know, he commented like, oh, your hexagons were really small. And I was like, I, I didn't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> he could have told yeah. you before, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's interesting. And and technically, what's your, like, really on this sort of file format level, like how, how do you, let's say, bounce results between data processing, D3 and Illustrator? Do you, like create SVGs in D3, open them in Illustrator, save them back, stuff like that? Uh, it's almost all done in D3. Um, although there is one example, um, getting a lot of background noise. That's Enrico. Okay, there we go. Thanks, Enrico. <laughs> Is somebody in a car? <laughs> um, another sort of interesting example of this hybrid, uh, like computer human approach to graphics is the network diagram that we did on the Oscar contenders. Yep. And that started out as just a standard force directed graph layout, you know, where you just plug in the network and it automatically lays out the entire graph for you. Um, yep. But while that was fairly good, it really was not as good as you could do by hand. Um, and so I was collaborating um, with Alicia DeSantis on making the print version of that graphic. And she ended up you know, taking the output that we had in SVG and putting it into Illustrator. And then she did a whole bunch of tweaking to the, that network. And then she showed me the draft for print. And I was like, wow, that looks so much better than the version that I had been making for the web. And so then I had to figure out how to incorporate those improvements back into the version of the web um, so that it looked better. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, the way that I did that is I ended up implementing sort of an editor interface for the graph that would sort of start with the initial output of the force-directed graph layout algorithm and then allow me to just sort of move things around 
um, in the browser and then save it back out to the data file. So in a sense, it was uh, like nice. a yeah. very limited custom version of Illustrator that I wrote in the graphic to just move the, the nodes around. But again, but with the constraints implemented, like uh, what can go where, or, or also the line drawing being automated, of course. Right. Yeah. So it was very specific to this particular problem. Um, so I could just move around the actors and the the sort of connecting splines and the labels and such like that. Yeah, yeah. That's a luxurious workflow, of course. <laughs> if you have time to build your own custom tools that are really the best to to make one graphic on point, I think that's that's really fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the challenge is like figuring out when you're building a tool, sort of what is the minimal instantiation of the tool that gives you just what you need, right? Because if you sort of overgeneralize, like if you overbuild your tools, you can spend a lot of time building this thing that you're really just going to throw away at the end of the graphic. Like there's no value in the tool itself. The value is only in the output of the tool. So sort of having a foundation like you know, tools like D3 that make it faster for you to build these things is sort of what makes it a viable approach. But you also have to be ruthless about only implementing what you actually need for the graphic. Yeah, I mean, there is always this danger that <laughs> you built this Swiss uh, army knife type thing that <laughs> can do a lot of cool stuff uh, once you start building tools and frameworks. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could move on uh, talking about D3. I mean, people are surely very like curious to hear like uh, about your perspective on D3 and, and how the thing, uh, the whole thing developed, where you see it going, so... I think that that could be interesting to discuss. So we, we did have Jeff on the show maybe, I don't know, half a year ago. So we covered all the pre-D3 stuff with him anyway. So we, our listeners should be familiar, yeah, should be familiar with ProtoViz and, you know, all the precursors and so on. So um, can you give us a, a quick run through of the history of D3 and where it is now? Uh, sure. That takes me back a few years. Um so let's see, uh, when I joined Stanford's PhD program in computer science in 2008, um, Jeff, uh, let's see, one of the first classes that they make you take is called CS300. It's a survey class. And basically, like every professor does one lecture to talk about um, their area of research. And so it's a great way to get a sense of sort of the entire space of research opportunities in computer science. And Jeff, at the time, was still finishing his PhD at Berkeley, um, but he had already um, gotten offered a job as a professor at Stanford. And so he came to give his CS300 lecture on information visualization. And it was actually somewhat embarrassingly, I mean, the first time I really learned about visualization as being a research field. like. Uh, Prior to that, I had an interest in visualization. You know, I had done some mm -hmm. stuff at, at Google, and you know, I owned every book by Tufty, um, and it was something that I knew that I was interested in, but I didn't really realize that it was something that I could focus on as part of my PhD studies. Um, so right after he gave his lecture, I was like, "This is amazing! Like, this is what I want to do! Like, will you be my advisor?" Um, and so he then joined. I guess it was in the winter quarter and taught uh, the CS448B data visualization class. And ProtoViz was my final project uh, for that class. 
So there are several sort of earlier homework assignments, um, smaller projects, but then the culmination of the class is like a four or five week project um, where you implement something and then you write an academic style paper um, to accompany whatever it is that you made. And so that ended up being the Protovis paper that was accepted to the IEEE InfoVis conference. Um, and let's see. And you had the framework implemented as a prototype as well? Right, or, yeah. Or was so it the, like, the prototype yeah. of Protovis, that's a sort of a tongue twister, <laughs> was implemented as part of that class. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a lot of work, right? Because, I mean, obviously, or did you, like, in the beginning already know, like, how this thing would work well, and you just wrote it down? Or because, <laughs> I mean, writing, came writing a framework like that is... Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I had an idea very early on that I wanted to build this sort of bottom-up approach to visualization, which is that I saw a lot of the existing uh, approaches sort of took more of this top-down approach where they tried to sort of at a very high level describe... Um, how it's sort of a language of visualization or grammar of graphics. And what I wanted to do was more sort of build it up from these visual components because I just find it more approachable or more intuitive to think about the discrete visual elements that comprise the visualization that I'm making rather than thinking about it more in mathematical terms of these mapping dimensions of data mm -hmm. to visual encodings. And so the, no. the whole goal of Protovis was to try to come up with a simple language that expressed visualizations as graphical marks. Um, <laughs> forgot what I was going to say after that. But, um, yeah. yeah, but it's, but it's really nice to explain how visualization works, I think. So I still use it when I teach. I still use this cheat sheet from Protovis because it's so nice in a sense that you can say like, okay, here's different types of graphical marks you can use. They can have static properties and dynamic ones, and the dynamic ones might depend on data or their their order in a list. You know, so all these basic things are very nicely right. laid out there, and I think that that also makes the basis for D3's logic of yeah. I mean, things. the challenge but, is to try to just have this very simple representation, which is a direct mapping from your data to these graphical elements, rather than something that's more abstract than that. But at the same time. It can't be so low level that it's extraordinarily tedious to work with, right? I mean, people want to make visualizations yeah, yeah. quickly. They don't want to spend any more time than they have to making these things. So having a language that strikes the right balance between sort of being accessible, um, easy to learn, being efficient, which is like fast to create whatever it is that you want to create, and also being expressive, like having the ability to express all of the different possible types of visualization you might want to make, you know, that... Those mm. are the three sort of main dimensions or criteria we were looking at in designing a language. In terms of going from Protovis to D3, I think the real thing there that I was trying to accomplish was to make it even more expressive um, without giving up this efficiency. Um, so the, the main limitation of Protovis was because it defined this language of graphical marks, um, anything that wasn't in that predefined language, you wouldn't be able to make. Um, so some simple examples yeah. of that. It was like a sandbox world, right? So you had you had circles and rectangles, and now deal right. with it. <laughs> and so you know, I I loved 
some aspects of the language, but at the same time, when I wanted to do certain things, like if I wanted, you know, stroked um, or dashed strokes, you know, or if I wanted a, a gradient or something, or a clipping path, or various other things that the browser was perfectly capable of doing, but Protoviz could not support because it wasn't built into the language. So my options were to sort of keep incrementally adding features to the Protoviz language, um, or to try to rethink it and, and somehow still capture the essence of Protoviz without simultaneously incorporating the representation. And so that's really how D3 came about, is to try to basically solve a smaller problem which is this mapping from data now not to a custom graphical language, but to an existing representation, which is the document object model. So how to capture that mapping without needing to also specify the entire graphical language. And the beauty of that is that, you know, as new functionality is added to web standards, that functionality is immediately available when you use it in D3. You know, and you don't have to learn uh, sort of a proprietary representation. You just learn the standard representations, and you can take advantage of all of these existing tools in this ecosystem that are all based on web standards. You know, like your Element Inspector and your JavaScript console that's built into your web browser. So, um, what what do you say? D three is more like um, like a toolkit. So I, I always perceived it more like like a toolbox of things you can freely combine and just see what. Yeah. comes out of the combination rather than this more framework-y here's a chart type and you can customize it. Yeah, it's definitely not, I definitely wouldn't call it a framework or a platform or any sort of monolithic yeah. thing. Um, the One of the ways that we talked about it was this idea of a visualization kernel, which is basically sort of what is the essence of visualization? Like what is the smallest but still central problem that you can solve that applies to basically every situation that occurs when you have visualization. And so that's where you get this concept of mapping data to a scene graph, to the document object model. Like whenever you have yeah. a declarative representation of a graphic, um, be that SVG or HTML or any other sort of scene graph, you have this problem, which is you have data, right? You have some abstract hierarchical or tabular data, and you need to somehow transform that. You need to create a scene graph from that data. Um, or likewise, if you're already showing a graphic and you want to show a different view or you want to support some sort of interaction or animation, you need to transform that existing scene graph um, to correspond to whatever your new data is. Um, and so that was really the core problem that we were trying to solve with the D3 is to express these transformations of the document object model based on data. And that's really where you get the concept of the data join and these three sort of enter, update, and exit subselections. They yeah, represent yeah. the three different possibilities when you're joining data to an existing scene graph. Um, but then on top of that visualization kernel, there are all sorts, all sorts of higher level primitives or abstractions or components that you want in order to make common types of visualization. And so in that sense, like on, on top of this kernel, you have sort of an unbounded toolbox of different things that you can plug in. But, yeah, but the key yeah. is different layouts. Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, there's a huge mapping library by now, <laughs> also due to Jason Davis' yeah. uh, passion, let's say. Jason has done <laughs> a tremendous amount of work on <laughs> our D3G3, yeah. D3GO module, um, which has just been really exciting. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea is that you have this sort of unbounded set of of components that you can use. 
And the key point, though, is that they're all they're modular. They're decoupled. So you have the kernel mm-hmm. at one level, which is this very small thing that's just trying to map your data to a scene graph. And then on top of that, you have these other components that you can pick and choose. And I think even though you know, there's been some... Uh, you know, people talk about D3 having sort of a steep learning curve and having difficulty understanding what the concept is of a data join. You know, once you understand that concept, which admittedly is fairly foreign, but it's kind of what gives it its power, like you've sort of mastered like everything to D3 that you need to start using it. Um, but beyond that, you can sort of pick up these individual components sort of as you want to increase your expressiveness and start to yeah. incorporate other yeah, standard yeah. visualization algorithms. And, and I mean, the, I think the main point is you have so many examples that for anything you want to do, there's already an example that's like 50% of it, <laughs> and you can just take that and, and customize yeah. it until you're sort of close to what you want to get get to. Yeah, I mean, one thing I found tricky, so I've been using quite a bit of these three lately, but one thing I found tricky is to scale it to like really complex applications that have like lots of different views and, you know, different tabs or screens and lots of options. So, uh, but probably that's more like finding the right patterns for yourself right. to, so to, D3, you know, to implement all these conditionals and uh, these different. Yeah, things. I mean, D3 being the sort of low level tool that it is, right, this visualization kernel, it doesn't presuppose a particular high level design for your application. So if you have right. a complicated application, you'll need to sort of solve that problem on your own. Like D3 doesn't solve that problem for you. Um, now, there are things that you can use, and there are sort of some standard patterns and things for building these larger applications, but I haven't sort of tackled that problem myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's tricky. There's also a conceptual decision in a sense of, okay, when do I make it two or three different SVGs, and when do I keep it in the same SVG? You know, that's hard to, you know, or or these types of decisions, like at what level do I introduce um, distinctions right. and so on. Yeah, that can be a challenge. I, I still, I think we still need to figure that out, like how to use it best. But I think it's safe to say it's it's the. I think it, up to now it's been the most successful or most popular, let's say, um, visualization toolkit slash framework. Um, I, I checked yeah. so, sometime in January and I saw it was like on place eight or so on GitHub, like the most starred project. So it's it's hugely uh, successful. Which, it's been pretty amazing to see how many people are yeah. using it. And just like to like yeah. that wiki on D3 is all publicly editable. And so everybody just can add their examples yeah. to that gallery. And there's hundreds of yeah. examples. <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from my... Uh, standpoint, D3 was the only visualization framework I was ever able to use, like sort of in production. I kind of played around with even Protoviz before and mm-hmm. like some of the other ones. Sure. And one of the things that always struck me is like with a lot of the other ones, you can always tell when you see an example out there of what framework was used to make it because there's always some telltale sign because it's a little yeah. like too rigid or whatever. But with D3, a lot of times it's like you'd have to inspect the source and like check for the D3 object to see because <laughs> you weren't <laughs> sure like there's yeah. no there are some telltale signs but it's so expressive yeah. that you can do so much with it and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it brings no visual defaults I mean maybe the axes are sort of you know once you see one of these D3 axes you might recognize them but that's it yeah, yeah. so yeah that's true yeah. yeah so we have a few questions from Twitter as well so um, Anna Schneider she asks like what do you think of Vega 
and will it change how you use or teach D3? So probably we should explain. So Vega is a fairly new development, again from Jeff Hare or his, his startup company, Trifecta. And they do something interesting, but I'm not sure if I understand even properly what they're doing. But it's sort of an abstraction on top of D3 or other frameworks of how you can describe charts and their contents. Sure, I can take a crack in JSON. at it. Um, I mean, yeah. for full disclosure, I'm a technical advisor to Trifacta, um, but I'm not directly sure. involved uh, with this Vega project, um, although I've been you know, helping Jeff a little bit with the design. Sure. I mean, basically, yeah. what Vega does is it's a strictly declarative language. So unlike D3, which is sort of tries to be as declarative in terms of minimizing control flow, like you don't have a lot of if statements or for loops when you write D3 code. Um, Vega is strictly JSON, so it's it's only declarative. I guess there's a small exception for that in terms of the interaction handlers, but generally speaking, philosophically, it's, it's only declarative. Um, and then the other thing that's different about Vega is that it's actually, it is a higher level abstraction. It's, it's higher level than D3. Um, so it's it's more like grammar of graphics a little bit in that you have a definition of what your dimensions of data are and then these transformations. And so it's able to do things like provide axes for you automatically um, rather than you needing to sort of wire those up with scales like you would do with D3. So for me, Vega is really sort of the perfect uh, or at least a, a much improved uh, output interface for a lot of exploratory data analysis tools. Um, so, mm -hmm. for example, you know, if you're using R or if you're using Pandas, people have already written um, interfaces on top of Vega. There's this project called ClickMe for R and something called Vincent um, for Pandas that basically lets you generate Vega slash D3 visualizations from these exploratory tools. And I think so. Would you say it's almost like a ggplot replacement or something like that? I think you could write sort of ggplot to Vega <laughs> to D three if you wanted to <laughs> as well. Um, but I, I mean, more generally, yeah. you know, getting back to this like visualization kernel, it's always been my hope that people would build higher level abstractions on top of D three. Using yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and they, that that way they can pick sort of a different point along the spectrum between sort of the most expressive but lowest level tool to the most efficient highest level tool but then you, you correspondingly have to give up some of your expressiveness so you can't yeah. be as expressive in vega as you can in d3 but at the same time you know your specifications can be smaller and it can provide a lot more automatic functionality for you mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. And and this idea that, yeah, it's something you can combine with other tools or establish these pipelines, I think that makes it very, very fascinating to think about that. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, yeah, traditionally, cool. D3 um, hasn't yeah. really been designed you know, for exploratory visualization. I mean, it's really for these types of custom visualizations like we do at the New York Times. Yeah. And But you heard sure. earlier, you know, I do use it for exploratory visualization. But to me, that only works, like A, I'm very familiar with D3 already, having written it. Um, and uh, you know, we cut all of these corners in our, uh, in our iteration, in our early prototypes. So we're not trying to solve sort of the more tedious tasks of visualization just to get a sense of what the raw data graphic looks like. And that's what enables us to use 
D3 for exploratory visualization, even though on its surface it might seem only more appropriate for more custom data graphics. Yeah, and I mean, it's not for everybody to, you know, customize everything. Some people just want a quick line chart based on some data. Exactly. And I think Vega Bridge, Bridge is exactly that uh, uh, that sort of that, yeah. that gap. Maybe. And the other uh, aspect uh, yeah. that I like of using D3 for exploratory visualization is as we're doing this iterative design process and we start to converge on our final design, I don't have to throw away whatever it is that I made using the exploratory tool to finally start producing the final graphic. Right? I've got a starting platform for building that final graphic, and I can just sort of it allows me to transition very easy easily from the exploratory stage of the design process to more the refinement stage when we're actually making the final graphic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this space is still wide open. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So a little update on Enrico. So they kicked him out of the room. I read this on 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 Skype chat now. And he's on the street, <laughs> but we, we hope we can have him join uh, sometime soon when he finds a Starbucks or something. Just for those of you who might be wondering here, why he is so quiet, <laughs> uh, I could also dial him in with phone, maybe. Ah, we'll, we'll see. He he will be back. Um, we can have a few more questions. So Lynn Cherney, she asks, are there more? Uh, these three books in the works, or more tutorials that are especially like. Um, targeted towards more advanced users. So we've seen a lot of D3, getting started in D3 tutorials, I think. I mean, that makes sense too, because everybody needs to get started. But now, now there's also a need for more advanced yeah. stuff. So are there, are there any plans you're um, aware of? Or are you writing on something yourself? Uh, maybe? Well, just on Friday, I uh, released a new article that I wrote that explains the internal workings of selections called How Selections Yeah, that was work. very informative. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. For me, it was like, ah, ah, <laughs> groups. <laughs> I sort of, I had sort of this visceral feel on groups, but I couldn't name it. That's great. <laughs> so now I, now, I, now I can point to yeah, it. Yeah, so <laughs> the goal there was to really describe the, you know, how selections are implemented rather than just how to use selections. And I right. think it is interesting sort of as D3 has gotten more established and more people are using it, the demand shifts a little bit from just sort of why should I be using this tool and how do I get started to I've already decided to use this tool, but how do I really master it and get the most out of it? And so in that case, you know, when you have a doc or an article like how selections work, um, you know, it, it takes a little bit more work. It's a longer document. It's more technical. And so if you don't already have a motivation to use D3, it, it might not resonate with you. But I think for the people that are using D3 already, it provides that really more detailed information that helps them get to the next level with their use of the tool. Yeah. And yeah. so Yeah, and a few advanced like patterns could be interesting, like like this cookbook type thing, you know, where like you have recurring problems and you need a smart uh, smart solution yeah. to yeah, higher level patterns maybe. Yeah, definitely. Like I think there's there's definitely demand, increasing demand now for more of these uh, intermediate or advanced level tutorials. Um, now, I try to write tutorials sort of like whenever I have a chance, like, you know, in, in addition to these um, examples and stuff that I'm releasing. I think eventually, maybe if I have enough of these tutorials, I can somehow string them together and make them into a cohesive, comprehensive book. But just the idea of 
starting out trying to write a book is a little bit too daunting. I mean, it's a, it's a huge amount of work. It's a huge task, um, yeah. So I, yeah. I personally, I enjoy right now, like, sort of the more rapid release cycle of, of sort of getting a bunch of feedback, like seeing types of questions that people ask either on the mailing list or on Stack Overflow, you know, or looking at talks that people are giving and, and trying to identify, like, what are the issues that people are coming, commonly running into and then write a tutorial that tries to address those issues specifically. Yeah, yeah. or just a demo. Or yeah. So so often, like things have just been cleared up with you, just yeah, putting out one thing that shows how to use that specific like stacking. Yeah, or whatever. and that it's so much fun for me to do that clear. because it's yeah. really it's not a lot of work to create these demos, but you can just get it out there, and then you know, people are so happy to understand how things work. So how is the community? So it's is it mostly you and Jason Davis? So that's what I gather from like following with one eye. Or are there more people involved like in the core development of, of the In terms project? of core development, I would say that Jason and I are probably like mid nineties in terms of how much of the code that we've written, like ninety percent or something like that. We do get a variety right, of other yeah. contributions from people in terms of like pull requests to fix bugs or to add mm -hmm. small features. Um, Lots of people have edited the wiki to add additional documentation or to add their own examples and things like that. Um, I think part of it is a reflection of D3's design in a way, like because it is focused on this like visualization kernel, the core of it is pretty small, right? It's not this giant framework that needs to expand uh, whenever you want to add a new feature to it. It's, it's a low-level sure. thing, and, yeah. and most of those features that you want can already be supported. It's just a question of like making the right example or teaching you how to do that. Um, but right, I think there yeah. is an opportunity for more people to write like plugins, like these additional layouts or even chart types um, or behaviors or like reusable components like the axes <coughs> and the brush. Um, so there is a D3 plugins um, repository as well where some people have been contributing more higher level components for reuse. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, in a way, it's it's interesting because the the model seems very similar to jQuery. So, do you follow what's happening with jQuery a right bit, now? Yeah, so they just had the seems jQuery to be, Yeah, that. exactly. And they sort of have now these two versions. One nine X is still like supporting older browsers, and it seems to become very tricky right now to to manage jQuery just because it has been adopted so widely, and you know you run into all these issues with backwards compatibility and so on. And yeah, well, I took um, so, sort of a hard-nosed stance early on by rejecting, you know, IE eight and below by basically saying like I'm only going to support. Um, this was true of yeah. Protovis as well, actually. So like in 2008, <laughs> like only supporting <laughs> browsers that support web standards, that's and everyone true. was like, oh, that's ridiculous yeah. at the time. But now, of yeah. course, you know, like you win because <laughs> IE nine <laughs> is now like I think just past. Um, Usage of IE eight and like IE ten, and they've got like auto updates set up. But yeah, it's still an issue. Like you know, when I work with big corporate clients, they often have. Yeah, definitely, still, there are still um, pockets of know, resistance. Whenever you have a central IT department, you have lots of IE eight right. still. So. Um, but like what yeah, we do in yeah. the New York so, Times, for example, is that we just use uh, screenshots of our graphics as the fallback for IE eight right. and, and below. So it's yeah. not like they're not seeing anything. And in fact, the way yeah. that we design our graphics is such that the static view of the graphic is supposed to convey all of the important points, 
right? So the idea of interaction is that it's just adding sort of an extra layer of depth to the graphic if you want to explore it and, 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 and extract more insight from it. But you should be able to get the main points of a graphic just by looking at the static representation, which is what makes yeah, doing yeah. the screenshot a viable approach. And being minimal. That's work. a nice sanity check, anyways. Like, if you don't get it from a picture, probably you don't get it with a right. drop down as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And uh, like talking about the future, uh, for instance, Sam Leach and a few other people asked what he asked specifically where do you think or hope D3 will be in one, two, or five years even from now? <laughs> like, do, do you even think in these dimensions? Uh, I mean, or? not really so much like on a day-to-day -day basis like it, I mean you never know what technology is going to be like in five years um, there is one thing that I would really hope though which is not actually directly related to my sort of development plans for D3 but in terms of sort of more broadly like the space for web-based data visualization and that is that I hope that the browser vendors continue to make improvements to their rendering engines um, there's yeah, still true. a lot of room for improvement in terms of performance and the quality when rendering SVG. And SVG has this nice property that is a purely declarative representation of a scene graph. And that means it's possible to take that declarative representation and then push it all the way down to the graphics hardware. And that would greatly improve rendering performance um, and also even improve the quality where you have things like full scene anti-aliasing versus like getting these little small seams between uh, adjacent polygons and things like that. And there was actually a project at NVIDIA called NV Path Rendering where somebody implemented this. Um, I don't know what the status of that project is, but it was super exciting when I saw him, you know, like demonstrating a very complex SVG at 200 frames per second, just like rotating it around <laughs> and transforming it. And so I would love to okay. see that happen to basically improve um, you know, our ability to use larger data sets and to do more rich transitions and animation without having to resort to the low-level complexity of WebGL. Um, yeah. How do you see WebGL? Do you think in maybe two or three years every browser will support it and it's going to be like the... The default well, high-end rendering thing on the web, or do you think it's going to stay niche? Uh, I don't know. I mean, initially I was very bearish because uh, I never expected Microsoft to support it, because you know Microsoft's got this relationship with DirectX and wanting to support that rather than OpenGL, which right. is the basis of WebGL. Um, but then it turned out, um, I mean, I don't know if they've confirmed this, but there's been some rumor of them supporting WebGL in IE 11, which is very surprising to me. I mean, there's still the question of whether Apple will support uh, WebGL on mobile mobile Safari, which they haven't yeah, done yet. Yeah. There's a question of like whether they're doing that for security reasons or whether they want to sort of hamstring your ability to write compelling apps in the web browser versus <laughs> selling them on the App Store. Um, yeah, but that's all conjecture too. on yeah, my yeah. part. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I my I mean, my personal hope, despite WebGL being amazing and I I love that it exists I would really hope that we still have um, improvements to SVG because it's so much easier to use and so having you know taking it better advantage of the graphics hardware while still sticking with this easy to use graphical declarative representation would be really useful 
By the way, Enrico, Enrico, yeah. are you back? Yes. I'm back. Hey. I, was, I was kicked out <laughs> quite so rudely. Where, where are you now? On the street somewhere? <laughs> I actually managed to come back almost to where I was before. I hope they don't <laughs> kick me out again. <laughs> that was the only solution I found. <laughs> they, they're not going to be so friendly if they Gosh. find you the second time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is the catch. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't talk too loud. Yeah, exactly. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. Enrico on the was run. Quite, was quite weird. Anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good to have you back. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> Do you have any more questions concerning D3? <laughs> I have tons of questions. No, I mean, yeah. It's the first time I will have the opportunity to listen to data stories, actually. Oh, that's right, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so did you did you go through some of the questions from Twitter or? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got these pretty much covered, like the past, present, future. We have it down. Okay, okay. <laughs> Good. I don't know. So, Mike, so is, is there still anything? So, would you consider the framework to be now complete and the rest is details? It's not a framework, it's totally. Um, but, uh, or is there still something where it's like, like, oh, this part is still really missing uh, and once I will tackle that? Yeah, in terms of, you know, the core of D3, in terms of, uh, you know, transforming the document object model based on data, I think that's pretty stable. I don't expect there to be too many changes to that in the near future. Yeah, you shouldn't change that anymore, yeah, I guess. But <laughs> there's still, you know, that entire space of what the higher level components are that you build on top of it. So things like the layouts and the behaviors and the you know, SVG components like sort of you know, interpolators for lines and areas, things like that. The other mm -hmm. sort of little bits that you can compose together to produce your visualization. I think that space is unbounded, right? There's an infinite number of things that we could implement there. And so it's just a question of identifying like what the most useful components are and then designing a convenient but flexible API to support that. So I think there's there'll be an increasing amount of development in that space going forward. Um, and then also in terms of like what I want to do with D3, uh, there's a huge education component as well, like just making sure that people find it easy to use, um, understand sort of best practices, whether that's best practices in terms of like how to organize your code. Like you mentioned, you had difficulty with sort of more complex applications. Yep. Like that's something that we could try to solve. Um, or visualization practices as well, like, like what are appropriate ways to design transitions or to to label mm -hmm. your graphics mm -hmm. you know like there are all sorts of <laughs> interesting problems in terms of just labeling scatter plots for example like we could provide better algorithms to to solve that problem um, so I, I think of d3 as this this kernel right that solves the smallest problem and then we can identify other problems that we need to solve that then builds on top of that platform yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I mean, I think it's going to be super important to keep the core as clear as, as possible. And yeah, as you say, explain it as yeah. clearly as possible. And and then the people will just yeah advance it on themselves. Yeah. So, Moritz, did you ask to to Mike the question from Robert? From Robert Cosara? Oh, yeah. No, I haven't yet. So you, you can <laughs> so ask it. When does, so Robert Cosara is asking, when does Mike Bostock sleep? Uh, well, the answer is not very often right now because I have a nine-month-old daughter. <laughs> oh, well. So we know, we know something about that, me and Moritz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that makes it even more 
crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some people say that you are more productive when you are kids. <laughs> I still have to understand whether it's true or not. Anyway, yeah, you have but, to be very motivated yeah. to get things done quickly because you don't, don't know yeah, when you're Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're more time efficient. I think yeah, for me yeah, it worked yeah. out like that, that I yeah. was chopping my, my work then in really little pieces that I made sure I would manage to do and got much more <laughs> smart about like what I do when <laughs> because it could, like, it could be over yeah. any time. <laughs> so you have to make sure to do the important stuff first and stuff like that. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Should we stop here, Moritz? Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. we are at ninety minutes almost. So, okay. I mean, we so could go on I'm, for hours I'm, as usual. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to listen. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice episode. So yeah. <laughs> you're gonna enjoy it, I guess. I'm really sorry, guys. It's been really weird here. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Yeah. 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 But anything been, else you want to add? Like, did we did we forget to ask something really obvious? What do you want to sneak in? Something like little. Any announcement? Self promotion? <laughs> Come on, do they need any self promotion, Moritz? <laughs> More than that. <laughs> you want to add anything, Sean? <laughs> okay. I think we covered most everything. <laughs> That's good. Cool. Yeah, it was fantastic to have you. Very, very interesting. Uh, we're going to put up a post, hope to include as many of the links we talked about as possible. I think uh, listeners will have to see the graphics, you know, in parallel, hopefully. And yeah, well, it was great hearing the inside story. Maybe we can do one in a year or so, talking about D4. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's all WebGL based. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that could be fun. All right, sounds great. Okie doke. Thanks so okay. much. Yeah. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us on. Yeah, thanks for joining and uh, talk soon. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, bye. bye, bye.